And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. A few people uh, have had more and varied experience in uh, the politics and government of our country than Ron Klain. He's been involved in two administrations. He uh, uh, served in the, uh, as a staffer in the Senate. He's run campaigns. He's been the debate coach for Democratic presidential candidates going back uh, for decades. Uh, he also was the chief counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I sat down with Ron the other day to talk about his life, his career, and this looming battle uh, for the vacancy created by the death of Justice Antonin Scalia. Ron Klain, you, you're a sort of an icon of the kind of Washington political government scene, uh, but uh, I went back and read up a little bit about your life. You, you, you weren't like raised in a political family, or how'd you, how'd you get interested in all of this? Well, you know, it's a, uh, it's a great story. Uh, I was not raised in a political family at all. Uh, my father uh, owned our family's plumbing supply business in Indianapolis, Indiana. And uh, it was an inner city uh, business, uh, you know, mo- very modest business. But uh, one day in April of 1968, uh, an advanced person decided they needed a place to do a real people event. And so Senator Kennedy's campaign uh-huh. came to my father's plumbing supply business and did the kind of events we've done in politics a million times. And uh, a little thing where he came in and shook hands and you know talked about what it was like to do business in the inner city in Indianapolis. And I met Senator Kennedy that day. I was seven years old. And uh, it absolutely fired. Wasn't it in Indianapolis where he did his speech it was when the, Martin Luther it, it was, King was... It was the morning after Dr. King was assassinated. Oh, my God. They had set up this event. They went through, and, yeah. and he arrived that night, gave that very famous speech in Indianapolis. Yeah, next, maybe the greatest speech of his life. An amazing, amazing set of remarks. The next morning, got up and went back to the... You know, business of running for president. Huh. Did this kind of schmaltzy event. Were you aware of the speech the night before? I was not aware of the speech the night before. I was seven years old, uh, but met him the next day, and really, um, that was it for me. I knew this is what I wanted to be involved. So funny because in. you and I have this in common. You know, it was Jack Kennedy who uh, who uh, got me going. I went and I saw him speak in my little housing yeah, development, yeah. and that's what got me. Uh, interested in this. Yeah. So did you, from that moment on, you followed it? You Followed st- it. We knew this is kind of what I wanted to work in. Came uh, to Washington for college, came to Georgetown University, worked on Capitol Hill while I was in college. And Weren't you an intern in high school as well? I had come to Washington in high school. Uh, also worked interning for Birch By then, who was uh, my senator. Uh, and uh, What so kind of guy was he? He seemed like a great he guy. He is an amazing, amazing person. You know, just... Uh, really uh, incredibly principled, incredibly, uh, you know, devoted to the causes he believed in. I worked on his, his last campaign, his 1980 campaign. I covered it. And, 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 and I, I, you know, my favorite memory of that campaign was I was, you know, obviously still in college and uh, did field work, but sometimes drove him around when the person who usually drove him around wasn't available. And one day we were in Newcastle, Indiana, uh, at the Chrysler factory, and uh, Senator Bayh had voted for the Chrysler bailout. He was running against Dan Quayle, who had voted yeah. against the Chrysler bailout. And, um, and we're going through this factory, this Chrysler factory, and, and these two guys came up to him and started needling him, like, you voted to sell out Taiwan. You voted to sell out Taiwan. You voted to give away our canal in Panama. And, and this is going on, you know? And uh, it was finally, like when no one else was around, Bayh turned to them and said, 
I voted to save your jobs. And you're yelling at me about some island that's 7,000 miles away? Uh, but that was 1980. That was kind of like the tenor in the field of the That was a times. harbinger of a harbinger. I covered that race for the Chicago Tribune, and I w- rode around with Birch Bay for two days. And, and then I went and saw Quail, and Bay was so personable. He was, yeah. uh, you know, if he saw people playing horseshoes, he would stop. He had a horseshoe in his in his trunk and yeah. he would stop and he would play horseshoes. Yeah. He had a shotgun for turkey shoots in the back. And he'd go and he'd give these incredible sort of homespun populist uh, speeches. And I thought, and, and Quayle was very stiff. Yeah. I thought, God, how could Bio lose this? And now, I mean, I did some reporting and I figured out how he could lose it. But um, but what a what an interesting guy he Fantastic was. Fantastic guy. Fantastic yeah. guy. So you came in to Washington to go to college. Yeah, Georgetown uh, University, and uh, and then uh, while I was there, I also you were the first one in your family to go to college. First right? one to finish. My mm-hmm. my mom and dad both went, but never finished. Um, uh, so uh, while I was there, uh, I uh, started also interning uh, ultimately for uh, then Congressman Markey. Um, Ed Markey, Ed Markey yeah, from, from Massachusetts, Massachusetts. Uh, and uh, took a job on his staff after I finished uh, college. And uh, a few months later, uh, Senator Songus retired. Ed got in the race and uh, uh, wound up working on and ultimately running his campaign. Uh, as long as he was in it, he finally withdrew to rerun one for re-election. But that was uh, how old were you then? Twenty-three years old. Uh, so it was it was a wild campaign. Uh, ultimately, John Kerry won, uh, but and had probably made the right decision by getting out of that race, and then thirty years later, finally uh, became a senator. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Chose the what patience, patience, patience what a pays virtue off. patience is. Patience pays off. So then you went to law school. I did. Went to uh, law school at Harvard, and um, um, you know, uh, met uh, up there uh, uh, John Martilla, uh, mm-hmm. one of the great, great old political consultants. Political consultants. And uh, John uh, introduced, uh, I knew John a little bit through the Massachusetts politics, my work on the Markey campaign. Dan Payne, uh, who at that time was partners with John, had been our uh, media consultant on the Markey campaign. Anyway, through John, I met uh, Joe Biden uh, and uh, uh, took uh, some time, uh, my, uh, one of my summers during law school, to work on the Judiciary Committee staff. That's how I got to know Senator Biden. Uh, he was the chairman of the committee. He was the, he was the well, at that time, what, he was actually the ranking member. Democrat on yeah. the committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we, we ultimately took the Senate back, and he became uh, the chairman. Um, and so I did. I took my third year of law school. I left Harvard, came down to Georgetown to do my third year to work on his staff in, in preparation for him running for president in 1988. Um, and um, uh, so that's how I got to know him. Uh, way way back in the day, and then you were counsel to the Judiciary Committee. Yeah, so I actually actually didn't join the Biden campaign itself. Uh, I had committed to go be a law clerk, so I went and clerked for two years. Uh, when I finished my clerkship, I then joined the Judiciary for Committee for Justice White for on Justice the Supreme White. Court. Yeah, I have to tell you, uh, I had a cousin who was the co-chair of the Colorado for Kennedy campaign yeah. with Byron White yeah. in 1960. And when I was a kid, I came down to Washington, and she took me over to the Supreme Court to meet him. And like any self-respecting nine-year-old boy, I was transfixed by his football yeah, of course. Paraf- uh, memorabilia. Uh, more than I was the fact that I was sitting there with a Supreme Court justice. But uh, anyway, that's an aside. Yeah. Uh, well, but- he's an amazing figure in American history. Uh, he was and probably now 
always will be the only person in the history of our country who at the same time led the NFL in rushing and was first in his class at Yale Law School at the same time. He went to law school during the week, played in the NFL on the weekends. Yeah. And uh, I feel like if know, there had been Title IX years ago, Ruth Bader Ginsburg may have been but maybe, the second. Per, per, but, perhaps, perhaps, yeah, but, perhaps. Uh, but anyway, um, so back to uh, the Judiciary Committee. Yes. You were there at a very active time. Yes, I was there. I was chief counsel of the committee. Uh, when the committee considered the Souter nomination and then Clarence Thomas's nomination in 1991. And what did you take away from that experience? Well, it was, uh, I've, you know, I've been involved in a lot of wild things uh, in my career, but nothing compares to the Thomas hearings. Uh, you know, I think it's hard for people today to appreciate how extraordinary it was in an era before social media, before the Internet, we had never really seen anything where politics crossed the line into culture and into cultural life the way that controversy between uh, ultimately between Justice Thomas and Anita Hill really did. Uh, it was just wild and um, uh, primetime television at a time when that really meant something and um, really just a unbelievably dramatic series of events. The uh, the Bork hearings preceded that yes. by a few years, and yeah. that was the first really contentious. I mean, there was Abe Fortas back in the 60s yeah, yeah, yeah. and so on, but that was really when these hearings became, uh, took a sort of sharper edge. Well, uh, a year before Bork... Because you had some of the Nixon appointees well. But, well. but just a year before Bork, President Reagan had nominated uh, then-Justice Rehnquist to become Chief Justice. And there was a bit of a fight about that. Uh, people may remember uh, a, a lawyer from San Francisco named Brosnan who stepped forward and said that he had seen Thomas as a young, uh, Rehnquist as a young lawyer harassing voters uh, uh, in a polling place, something that Rehnquist denied under oath. Uh, and uh, so there were 34, 35 senators who voted against confirming uh, Rehnquist to the, be chief justice. And that kind of was the first uh, blood in the water, if you will. And so a year later, when the Bork nomination came, it kind of came against a backdrop of that. In the 86, the Democrats had been in the minority. They had put up 35 no votes. In 87, they were in the majority. Uh, and so the, 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 the kindling was dry and ready for a pretty dramatic fight around the Bork nomination. Have these Supreme, you, you led to, when you were working for Vice President Biden, you led two Supreme Court uh, nomination fights for uh, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan. Um, have, has, has politics bled too much into these judicial nominating processes? Well, it has. I mean, and I also worked uh, for President Clinton on uh, Justice Ginsburg's nomination, Justice uh, Breyer's nomination. So uh, I did this twice on the Judiciary Committee, four times in the executive branch. And uh, it has. But she, she got confirmed unanimously, didn't she? Or she got 93 votes or she something? She was 96 to 3. Yeah. Uh, Breyer was that would be inconceivable today. Inconceivable today. Yeah, and that's a shame, right? I mean, I think that uh, uh, on the one hand, I think it's completely legitimate for senators to say, uh, you know, I was elected to, and my philosophy is something I can bring to bear on this decision. Uh, and I think that um, to, uh, to expect that a president will accommodate that complex set of views that a Senate reflects is a reasonable thing. Um, but I think President Obama and President Clinton before him 
both were very respectful at picking justices from the mainstream, justices that certainly reflected, you know, a a, a Democratic point of view in some general way, but were not at the far left extreme of our jurisprudence. Uh, And I think they, justices should be evaluated on that basis. And I think it's just become this, this, uh, you know, like a lot of other things in our public life, uh, very highly politicized, uh, uh, very highly partisanized and very polarized. I mean, uh, the idea that that they wouldn't even get a hearing, that they they wouldn't even have a chance to present themselves to the American people, that's obviously unprecedented and unfortunate. Now, uh, you were probably working for Senator Biden back in 92 when he made this speech that has become so, uh, uh, so much part of the news lately. The Republicans were pretty gleeful about uh, recounting that speech in which he said presidents shouldn't replace uh, justices in the final year. What was you, you may have been involved in that speech. Yeah. What was the thinking behind that? Well, I think uh, I think you have to be very precise about what Senator Biden said back then. So let's set the stage. That speech was given in June of 1992. It was just uh, eight months after the Thomas nomination. Uh, a nomination that President Bush had made uh, three days uh, after the vacancy occurred without consulting members of the Senate, without considering uh, the, 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 the issues about the balance between the Senate and the, and the White House, and had resulted in a conflagration that I think was unhealthy for the court, unhealthy for our country. And what Senator Biden said in that speech was basically, if President Bush tries to do this the same way in an election year, uh, then uh, I'm going to block that nomination. Uh, But he also said in that speech that if, on the other hand, President uh, Bush consulted widely with the Senate, picked someone who was a consensus candidate, then he would go ahead and proceed to confirm that person. So people are quoting half the speech, mm-hmm. but not the whole speech. Not unprecedented. Not in unprecedented. The of, uh, and out of politics. context, out of the context of the backdrop of that Thomas nomination. And, and in the end, Axe, you know, there's one bottom line here, which is that Joe Biden was the ranking Democrat or chairman of the Judiciary Committee for over a decade. Every Supreme Court nomination, while he was in that role, every time got a hearing, the person got out of committee and got a floor vote, even if Biden was against them. And both Bork and Thomas, Biden voted no, but still they got their votes on the floor and on a 51-vote up or down vote either got confirmed or not confirmed. That's the actual record here, and that should be applied here as well. Uh, let's start with Merrick Garland. Yeah, I mean, I've known uh, Judge Garland uh, for a very long time. I was a summer associate at Arlen Porter when he was a partner, and he's been uh, a friend uh, ever since then, we worked together in the Clinton administration Justice Department. Uh, he is an outstanding uh, legal mind. Um, he is uh, an incredibly uh, objective and fair-minded person. Uh, and I think in any kind of normal political universe, he's the kind of person that would be confirmed to the Supreme Court unanimously. And um, He was a prosecutor, prosecuted the Oklahoma City he, bombers. Exactly. He, he oversaw the prosecution of the Oklahoma City bombing case in the Clinton years. He was a prosecutor here in Washington, D.C., uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office, um, a, 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 a law partner here, very involved in uh, civic affairs, uh, and has now been on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, since 1997 or 98. Um, and, uh, you know, by all accounts, is a very highly claimed, highly accomplished jurist. Mm-hmm. What do you think the odds of getting this nomination uh, 
confirm i mean i i guess there's there's a question will it be heard yeah can the republicans resist having a hearing they seem to fear that if they have a hearing that they'll they'll then become under pressure to confirm the nominee yeah, yeah. this is a little bit like you know Odessa's being bound to the to, to, to the mast they're i guess afraid of being so persuaded by a great nominee they don't even want to don't even want to listen you know they're trying to plug their ears I think it's going to be very hard for them to sustain their position. This is a fair country. And I think that the idea that someone doesn't even get a hearing, doesn't even get a chance to present their case, doesn't even get a chance to be heard, I think is very going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. But but moving forward, we'll rub their, the Republican base the wrong way. We had Eric Erickson, who you probably yeah. know, on this, on this podcast a few weeks ago, and he said this is a this is a unpardonable offense. Anyone who allows this uh, this nomination to go forward is going to be excommunicated from the Republican Party. Well, I think that, um, you know, Eric is a very loud and effective voice, but I don't think he's the Pope of the Republican Party, and I'm not sure excommunication is within his power. And uh, in fact, uh, uh, Chuck Grassley is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, he's in a interesting competitive race now with Patty Judge uh, running, I love that his opponent's name is Judge. Judge just to rub it in. Yeah, you know? how can you beat that, right? Yes. And, I, and, I, and I think he's also, you know, a, a, I worked with him when I was on the judiciary committee staff. He is a reasonable person, and I think that uh, his basic sense of fairness will be appealed to here. Uh, and I think it will be, you know, look, they can pull up speeches and comments on both sides, but the fact is, 125 years, every nominee's gotten a hearing. I don't understand how you explain why this person doesn't even get a hearing. I mean, or, seems, or meetings. They, uh, or meetings, courtesy calls, all these things. It just seems like they're, they're, they're on a path of, of, of really being out of step with where the American people are. I suppose they can stay on that path, but I don't think they will. The, uh, you said you've been involved in some wild things in your career. Um, you became something of a, uh, uh, of a cultural uh, uh, figure back in the early 2000s because you were uh, a key player in the recount yeah. in, uh, in 2000 in Florida. Um, how, uh, in the pantheon of wild things you've been involved in, how wild was that one? Well, very wild. I mean, you know, on the high end of wild also. Um, uh, anyway, by the way, we should point out, anybody who wants to um, know more about this can watch the movie Recount in which Kevin Spacey plays... Yes. You yes he does yes Is, was that how weird was that that was pretty weird uh, 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 very weird I guess uh, weird to go uh, see, see you self portrayed by a uh, famous actor um, who got your idiosyncrasies now I don't know if you know that but you know when you we've been in many meetings together and when you're intensely considering what's being said you tend to look stare down at the table yeah and he got all of that did he spend time with you we spent a little bit of time together. Um, and uh, so he, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's, 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 a, it's a strange thing. Uh, I've seen that movie a bunch of times. Every time it has the same ending, and that's all I really care about. It's yeah. a very sad ending every time. Yeah. Um, I wish I could watch it once and we would win. But um, uh, it was, you know, a, a, an unbelievable 36 days, uh, something we've never really seen before in our history. Uh, a horrible injustice was done. Uh, the candidate who got the most votes was not 
inaugurated as president. The candidate who had the most votes in Florida was not inaugurated as president. Well, uh, that's the, the, the matter, that's the disputed matter, right? Because according to the record, uh, George W. Bush won Florida by 527 votes. Yeah, no, I understand. That's that's what that's what uh, his campaign chairman, who was the Secretary of State of the State of Florida, certified as the uh, as the vote in Florida, and what his brother, who was the governor of Florida, insur- and ensured uh, that stuck. But if we had seen this happen in another country, uh, we definitely would have called in election observers, if not the 101st Airborne. And, uh, you know, it's just an unacceptable outcome in a democracy that something like that is allowed to happen at the hands of partisan operatives for Although not just campaign. partisan operatives, because the United States Supreme Court essentially put its imprimatur uh, on that. I thought about you the other day when Justice, or a few weeks ago when yeah. Justice Scalia passed away, because he wrote that opinion, Bush uh, v. Gore. You're a constitutional expert. What was your feeling about that? We, and, and what did it do? What did it do? in terms of public confidence in the court? Well, I th- first of all, you know, I, I got to know Justice Scalia a little bit when I clerked at the court, and he was a, uh, a funny, kind person. And in the years subsequent, he gave an interview to 60 Minutes six or seven years ago where he kind of famously said, oh, a lot of people are still upset about this Bush v. Gore thing. I say, get over it. You should just get over it. And so... In the subsequent years after that, we would see each other at public events, and I would frequently say in public, you know, like, I'm not over it. I'll never be over it. We shouldn't be over it as a country. Uh, and he was always good-natured about that. Um, uh, so, so uh, You know, I think often about how different history would be if, uh, if that result had gone the other way, because some very consequential decisions yeah. were made. The decision to go into Iraq, the decision to spend down the surplus, yeah. uh, the decision to, you know, I, I assume Al Gore would have pursued climate change as a yeah. serious and, and energy, conver- con- you know, a, a transformation of our energy uh, as a major goal. It was really a consequential Yes, event. and you obviously can't unwind and peel back history and um, and whenever I have this conversation with people, people point out to me conversely, maybe Barack Obama would not have become president had Al Gore become president in yeah. 2000. So you can't like pick and choose your hypothetical right. undoing of, of, of history. But there's no question we had huge consequences for it, specifically the war in Iraq and the tax cuts. I also think it was a horrible thing for the Supreme Court as an institution to allow that decision to happen on a five to four basis, a partisan basis, the five justices appointed by Republicans voting for Bush, the four justices appointed by Democrats voting for Gore. I think that added to the sense that the Supreme Court's a political institution. It uh, kind of ripped away a bit of a veneer around the court. And if you look at polls, public confidence in the court never really has recovered from that. Court used to be held up as a different kind of institution in our life. And now ever since Bush v. Gore, it's seen as a much less respected, much more partisan institution. Yeah. The, uh, uh, you, you, we, we served together in the White House when you were uh, Vice President Biden's uh, chief of staff. One of your assignments early on was to oversee the Recovery Act, the big stimulus bill. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about that, because that was almost a trillion dollars out the door within a short period yeah. of time. Uh, how, how challenging was that? Well, it was challenging, and I think it reflected everything that is 
incredibly admirable about President Obama and that has been at times frustrating about his presidency, which is, I think, uh, as you certainly know better than I do, you know, President Obama was a person who believed uh, that if we do the right things, uh, the politics will take care of themselves. And the Recovery Act was the right thing. It was um, not perfect, had its own flaws, but uh, was a uh, you know, very impactful, uh, very uh, wonk-driven uh, piece of legislation that really saved this country, uh, along with the other things the president did, from going off the cliff in the Great Depression, uh, Great Recession. And uh, the president was very clear. He wanted to implement it in a very apolitical, very... Uh, effective, very uh, efficient way. I thought we had great success in that. We beat all the targets for getting the money out the door. We uh, set records for how little fraud and waste and abuse there was in the distribution of $800 billion in 20 months. Um, Even the one that, that, that the opponents point to, Solyndra, right. is now, uh, I think, uh, Solar City has taken over that plant. Yeah. And it's like churning out solar panels. Yes, and I mean on the on that side we had a 30 billion dollar portfolio of clean energy investments, some of them failed, uh, but the success rate of the projects under that part of the recovery act was higher than all the best venture capital firms have when they do this. And Solyndra itself was a bit of a of a hedging play, which is we invested in two kinds of solar technology, knowing that if one succeeded the other would probably fail. Uh, that was the best thing for the country. Um, and one of, one of them succeeded wildly. We have an explosion of solar mm-hmm. use under President Obama, an explosion of wind power due to some of the investments in the Recovery Act, uh, electric batteries in cars, something else the Recovery Act invested in. Um, but, you know, we didn't successfully persuade the American people that this was working. We didn't successfully persuade the American people that um, this was an effective program. And so we you know, paid a political price for that. Now you're in a, a, an interesting position because you're you're helping Hillary Clinton. Now I want to talk a little bit about you as debate debate maestro. You you were we brought you in in 2008, the Obama campaign to help uh, uh, prepare the president for the presidential debates again in 2012. But you've played that role for for decades with different Democratic candidates. But you're also very close to Joe Biden. Uh, were you? Uh, were you disappointed when uh, this opportunity to run for president didn't open up for him? Uh, you know, I know how difficult the loss of his son was to the vice president and his family, to all of us who care about him. And, um, you know, to everything, there is a time and a season. And uh, it just was clear to me that he... Uh, wasn't personally in a place where running for president really was an option. And, um, uh, you know, and actually, you know, you hear that from political figures all the time, my family, my family, my family. But you know, uh, Vice President Biden, you mm-hmm. know that in this case, that really is the no, first I'll thing. No, I'll tell you, when I first uh, really met him was when we were, David Pluff and I went to interview him uh, to become, uh, you know, for vice president. There were three finalists. He was one of them. I went to see him, and Bo Biden and Jill Biden picked us up at the airport. It was all clandestine. We yeah. were meeting at a secret, undisclosed location. And um, uh, it's the thing that struck me immediately was the love between all of them. And when we got there, um, uh, and, and Senator Biden arrived, um, he kissed 
Bo and said, I love you. I, I may come by later to see the kids. <coughs> and I went back to see the pre- uh, Senator Obama. And I said, there's something special about this family. Mm-hmm. And the love between them was so palpable. Yeah. So I, I will say this. I've, I, um, you know, I, I worked for Joe Biden off and on for 30 years. And I learned a lot about politics from him. Uh, but uh, the biggest lesson I learned from him is how to be a father. And a lot of what I've tried to do as a father in my own personal life has been modeled from the way the vice president is devoted to and supportive of his children. Uh, so I think um, Bo's illness and Bo's ultimate passing uh, just really made any effort by him to run for president's time uh, just impossible. I mentioned um, earlier that you, you're sort of the go-to guy on debates. Everybody always asks me about the period running up to that first debate in Denver for President Obama, and which, you know, my great recollection of it was you in the first 10 minutes of the debate uh, pacing vigorously in the room in which we were all watching, saying, this is a disaster, and it was a disaster. Why yeah. was it a disaster? What happened? Uh, well, you know, I think um, uh, kind of everything that could go wrong did go wrong that night. I, th- I think that, uh, f- first of all, um, you know, uh, we had just, as you will certainly recall, had just widened our lead over Mitt Romney in the races right after the 47% right. thing. And I think we got a little bit cautious. We got a little bit of we went into the four corners um, offense here with with two months left to go in the campaign, and sent him in with a very cautious game plan uh, that turned out to be a mistake. I think that was I think that was one thing. I think that Mitt Romney somewhat surprised us by by ha- after having stayed so far to the right the whole race that night. All of a sudden, boom, moved yeah. to the center, and I don't think we had prepared him well uh, for that. I think three. You know, President Obama always kind of eschewed a lot of the political theatrics uh, that are part of politics today. And again, I, I love him for this. I think it was make, is what has made him a great president. Uh, but that night, not being into political theoret- the, uh, theatrics made him a less than great uh, candidate. I think, that was, I think that was part of it. And then finally, it really was the impact of social media. You know, this was the first debate ever that was... Uh, where 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 the 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 perception of the debate was shaped in real time by people reacting to it on Twitter and the reaction by some liberals on Twitter um, that you know oh my God Obama's doing so terrible oh my God it's awful oh my God it's horrible that was something we had never really seen before we hadn't really prepared for that we didn't really have our own voices on Twitter competing that and so you know I I've watched that tape now several times. I think in fairness... You're a brave man. I think in fairness, I think President Obama loses that debate 60-40, but I think the Twitter reaction made it a 90-10 kind of event. Yeah. I think there's one other factor, and you and I talked about it a lot leading up to that debate. The history of presidents going into uh, the first debate is not very good. Presidents aren't used to having someone four feet away from them uh, on, on an equal plane calling them out. Uh, and they don't like it. Yeah, and we could see that in the prep. Well, that that is true. I mean, the six incumbent presidents now have debated uh, uh, in the since we started debates in in 1976, uh, the modern s- series, 
And of the six who've debated, five of them have lost the first yeah, Bill debate. Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton, ninety six, the, the only exception against Bob Dole. And I think it's I think it's part of that is part that they're rusty. You know, Mitt Romney had debated twenty three times that spring in the primaries. Barack Obama had not. Um, uh, it is the fact that they're confronted. And then it's also the fact that, you know, Mitt Romney had only one job, which was to get ready for that debate. Barack Obama was running the country. And so, as you know, a lot of times our practice sessions with him were curtailed. Uh, a lot of his time to prepare was really curtailed. The guy was president of the United States and leader of the right. free world. Mitt Romney was a candidate for president. Obviously, one is more conducive to getting ready for the debate than the other. Yeah. Tell me about Hillary Clinton as a debater. What's it like working with her? Well, you know, she's a very, very good debater. She's very fast on her feet uh, and, uh, you know, understands um, uh, this. She's now done, debated President Obama 28 times in 2008. Uh, That's certainly uh, a a very, you know, excellent uh, preparatory experience. Um, For him, too, I actually thought the reason he did as well as he did against McCain was he had a great sparring partner for the... Exactly for the previous. Uh, so so yeah. you know she comes into this with a lot of uh, a lot of experience um, and uh, clearly I think has been very effective in the debates and making her points and um, uh, you know and I think certainly uh, you know has done well in the debates. What about Bernie Sanders? Well, I think Senator. I mean, as a debater. Yeah, I think. Look, I think Senator Sanders, uh, you know, was newer to this, uh, but is also you know skilled in making his points. He's got a very clear and focused message and uses the debates uh, to get that across. Uh, You know, I think both of them have said, and I certainly agree with this, that as Democrats, you have to be proud to watch our debates and see the two of them have substantive exchanges, obviously differences of opinion, sometimes sharp differences of opinion, but differences of opinion on issues about the future of our country, not their respective hand size or spray tans or some of the stuff you're seeing in the Republican debates. So I think... Uh, you know, I think there are a lot to be proud of. I think it's also fascinating that these debates are drawing massive audiences. I mean, the the, the most viewed. I mean, you had Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, two amazing transformative figures, debate in yeah. two thousand eight. I think eight million was the eight most million was true. the peak, and yeah. and basically every one of these debates has drawn that audience sometimes twice as much. Right. Um, at a time when people have a lot more things they could be doing with their time. You know, they don't have to be watching television. So hasn't um, that played to 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 Sanders' uh, advantage, though, because he was so less known than than Hillary. Well, I think it I think it's worked to both of their advantage. I certainly think it's getting Sanders' message out. That certainly helps him. But I think you look at uh, particularly the first debate in October at a time when people had questions about her candidacy, a time when uh, her polling numbers were down a little bit, and she gave very, a very very strong performance there in Las Vegas that first debate, and it really. I think transformed yeah. perceptions of her candidacy. Right. Fifteen million people watching. I think it was a big boost for her. Sometimes uh, it seems as if she has a hard time uh, being revealing of herself. W- why is that? What, what what is it that makes her so so reserved about about sort of sharing personal feelings and? Well, you know, I think she believes that um, there are very few people in our public life who have been as scrutinized and speculated about and, and as analyzed as Hillary Clinton. And I think sometimes she just believes that basically it's kind of all out there and people form their own judgments. Uh, you know, she is, uh, by her own acknowledgement, um, not a natural politician. 
and very focused on policy. And I think you know she she wants to be president to make the country a better place, and that's what she likes to talk about. She likes to talk about her ideas to improve the economy, improve health care. Uh, you know, that's kind of her focus. That's what drives her. And I think that's what she more naturally talks about. She also, you say, she, she says, and I think uh, it's been a, a, a affecting when she says she's not a natural politician. It's ob- obviously true. But she is a veteran of government. Yeah. And she seems, uh, you know, she's in the position of being the voice of, of what is possible, the voice of pragmatism. Uh, versus uh, this more um, kind of idealistic, um, you know, sweeping uh, rhetoric of of Bernie Sanders. Isn't it hard to? I mean, it's like you're telling everybody what what is possible, what they what we can't do, and what we can do. Doesn't that put her in an awkward position? I mean, I'm not criticizing yeah. because I think she's right about. I mean, you know, we couldn't get a public option in the health care plan. I asked Bernie Sanders about this on the podcast. So how are we going to get single payer? I mean, these are legitimate questions. But there are a lot of folks who just don't, who, who are tired of being told what the limitations are, particularly on the left of the Democratic Party. Well, I mean, I, I obviously see it differently. I mean, I think she is proposing a, a bold, transformative agenda to go uh, and finish the job on universal health care, to make... Uh, uh, preschool uh, and uh, universal to to have debt free college. I think these are all really big ideas that she's uh, saying, and she's saying how we'll pay for them in a way that's also exciting and bold in terms of raising taxes on the rich and closing all of these loopholes. I think Senator Sanders, you know, I mean, he has an agenda um, that is interesting. But he hasn't really explained how he will pay for it, how the promises all add up. And I think, unfortunately, you know, I think on the long run, that sort of stuff only adds to some of the cynicism we have in politics. I think one thing that I most admire and respect about President Obama is that he's always been very careful not to overpromise, to lay, tell the American people what he's going to do and then go do that. I think that's really important. If you're a progressive and you want to believe that people can believe in their government again, then having promises that are achievable, having promises that you're going to deliver on, is an important part of restoring faith in the government. I think President Obama's tried to do that, and I think the agenda Secretary Clinton's laid forward in this campaign is consistent with that. Finally, I want to ask you about it. You, you, you're sort of a crisis manager, so you got called into the White House uh, during the Ebola crisis, yeah. uh, which was interesting to people because you're not a medical uh, person. You're a lawyer. Um, first of all, were you surprised when you got that call? I was quite surprised when I got that call. Um, and, um, uh, you know, uh, my phone rang one morning and it was uh, Dennis McDonough, uh, the White House chief of staff. And he said, you're going to get this call. And I just want to tell you what this call is going to be so you can think about it before you get this call. And, um, and I was, uh, shocked a little bit and surprised but you know, I think it reflects something I mentioned earlier about the president that I that um, I, I admire and respect, which is he does have a disdain for political theatrics. And the theatrics of the moment were that he should have picked a famous doctor or a general to run the Ebola response. The reality is, 
we had the two very best doctors you could have working yeah. on it, Tom Frieden and Tony Fauci. Right. And another doctor would have actually just disrupted the flow of medical advice to the president. And we didn't need a general. You needed someone who could come in and tee up policy decisions for the president in an orderly way, get the right decisions in front of the president, to help coordinate a lot of the infighting in the bureaucracy, to do a lot of the stuff we had done on the Recovery Act. I think that's why the president asked me to do it, because I think he saw the task as very similar to the task on the Recovery Act, to coordinate the bureaucracy, to get the policy issues worked out, to try to make things work effectively and efficiently. And even though that really wasn't the right political theater, uh, I think it was the right instinct. And Although there, there was so much theatrics surrounding that whole piece. I mean, one of the things I... I mean, I, you're a great manager, so I uh, I understood that decision. You're also a, a, a good message guy. And w what happened around that Ebola thing was sort of a parable of kind of what what's wrong with modern media, what's wrong with modern politics. In that, uh, we had a few cases here. Those guys who you mentioned, Fauci and Frieden, world-class public health experts assured the country that we weren't going to have a major outbreak here, that we could handle it. But uh, the news media and uh, particularly politics in the opposite, politicians in the opposition went nuts and said, we don't believe you. Uh, and so sort of panic ensued, yeah. or, or at least panic as portrayed by the, by the media. So I presume that one of your jobs was to restore sanity. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you know, President Obama made it very clear that he was going to make decisions based on science and facts and not let fear and panics and politics dominate his decision making. And so at every, every juncture along the way, um, he, um, he chose the medically right, the scientifically right course and didn't uh, do the politically expedient thing, which was to try to really... Uh, capture and, and, and manage these fears. Uh, and it worked. Yeah. It was the right strategy. Well, li literally weeks after the, uh, after the uh, sort of the peak of the panic, the thing sort of passed from public view. And there was a sense that, oh, well, I guess this wasn't the crisis that we, that we anticipated or yeah, that I mean, we I think, feared. I think, a, I think a critical event in that was uh, you know, we had Dr. Craig Spencer come back from fighting Ebola in West Africa, came to New York, turned out to have Ebola. Uh, before he was diagnosed, he had ridden the subway, he had gone bowling in Brooklyn, he had been in an Uber, he'd eaten a meatball sandwich. And there was this moment of panic in New York that this guy had been all over town with Ebola. And, uh, and I think when uh, the president's view on this, that we needed travelers back and forth to West Africa to fight the disease. If we didn't go fight the disease in West Africa, we would see more of it here on our shores. To send people to fight, that means you had to let them come home after they had been over there. Uh, that we didn't need quarantines because it would discourage that. That we could manage this by tracking people after they got back in the country, taking their temperature, getting them to care if they ever turned positive. And that we could do all that without having large outbreaks here in the United States. You know, that was proven right in the Craig Spencer thing was proven right in the largest city in our country. I think that did a lot to 
tamp, tamp down the fears and assuage the fears. I also think, again, to the president's great credit, every time he spoke about the issue, he, and a little different maybe than others, he said time and again, you know, we will have cases from time to time in the United States. And even though a lot of his advisors inside the White House, as you can imagine, yes. really freaked out at that, tried to keep yeah. crossing that sentence out of speeches, saying, <laughs> why are you telling the people this? Yeah. He was quite insistent. Look, we got to tell them this is going to happen from time to time. We will manage it. We will not have a big outbreak here, but we got to be straight with the American people. That was a big part of his communication around this. Well, brother, you have been involved in so much history. It's kind of incredible to, to talk about it all. But I'm so happy that you were able to come by today. Thanks for being here, Ron Klain. Thanks for having me, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.